You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Teller from Jerusalem, and I'm your host. You may be wondering who else would be the host if not myself, but I am your host, Hanok Teller. We left off last time how the British Mandatory Authority in Palestine was very prejudicial towards the Arabs. It was not initially this way, but that's the way it evolved with the policy of appeasement toward the Arabs. For example, and this is the example we left off with, the leaders of the Jewish settlement presented a plan to the British to save 10,000 Jewish children from Germany and bring them to Palestine, which would save their lives. At the very same time that the Grand Mufti requested that the British release our prisoners that were being held captive. There were no lives at stake in the Arab request, yet the British agreed to it. Yet they denied the request of the Jewish settlement to save these 10,000 children from absolute, definitive death. It cannot be that the British were unaware, because this is well after Kristallnacht, and Kristallnacht was about a year, 10 months prior to World War II. There was no censorship, the pictures, and the videos and the stills were posted in the media all across the world. These horrific scenes, these ghoulish scenes of cemeteries being turned upside down, of all Jewish stores being looted, of Jews being beaten, and 30,000 Jews being carried off to the concentration camps. A really quick summary would go like this. As Sir Martin Gilbert called it, Kristallnacht was the prelude to the Holocaust. What happened was October 27, 1938, Hitler was concerned. His concern was that in March of 38, there was the Anschluss. There was a referendum in Austria, and the Austrian voted they wanted to be under Nazi control. Then comes the fall. In September, there is the Munich Conference, where Chamberlain, the great appeaser, and Britain caves and buckles to Germany and hands over the Sudetenland, a large swath of Czechoslovakia, to the Germans. And Hitler panics. He has already Austria, and he has already Czechoslovakia, and he's afraid that his people are becoming soft, and he's about to begin a world war. World, world, world war means all kinds of difficulties, even on the home front. There's going to be scarcities, there's going to be rationing, there'll be body bags coming back by the truckload. How are we going to whip the people into shape? Always the same answer, to pick on the Jews. So on this date, October 27, all Jews in Germany of Polish ancestry are thrown over the border, literally thrown over the border. Between 2 o'clock and 4 o'clock in the morning, there are bangs on the door, and the Jews are wrenched out of their homes and placed in trucks or trains are forced to run to the Polish border. Of course, the Poles don't want them. 18,000 Jews are banished. The Poles will only admit, very begrudgingly, 6,000. The other 12,000 must stay in no man's land with no roof over their heads, and pigsties with the excrement still present, no roof over their heads exposed to the elements and to disease, and of course hunger. And they are driven in the pouring rain into Poland. Sir Martin Gilbert writes that the road out of Germany was red with Jewish blood as they were whipped and beaten, and it was a stampede. Whoever fell down would never get back up again. One family that was banished is Zundel Grinspan, who was a tailor his son, Herschel, was studying in university in Paris. His daughter, Bella, sends a postcard to her brother describing how appalling the conditions are, 
how people are dying for a lack of medicine, there are heart attacks, there's hunger, there's disease, there's no shelter. And at the very same time, Herschel reads in the Yiddish newspaper how appalling the conditions are indeed are. In an act of desperation, he gets hold of a pistol, he goes into the German embassy, and he shoots the first German he sees, a thoroughly unimportant individual, 25-year-old Ernst von Rath. He shoots him six times. Only two bullets penetrate, one in the abdomen, one in the shoulder. These are not serious wounds. Hitler sends his personal physician, Dr. Schmidt, in the head of the Bavarian uh, Obstetric College on his personal plane to Paris. But Goebbels, the minister of propaganda, realizes here's an opportunity. If we turn von Rath into a martyr, they'll make much more hay and much more get more mileage out of this incident. So these doctors see to it that von Rath is denied any medical attention. Two days later, he dies from his wounds. That night, which is the holiest day of the Nazi calendar, the night of the failed Birhol Putsch, that night, when everyone is into 200,000 gathered in Munich, Go, uh, Goebbels at midnight makes an announcement. A fine German, an important German, was struck down by, of course, the most despicable of all, by a Jew. And we're not going to stand for this. In prearrangement, then, the SS and all other military units make attack plans against every Jewish community in Germany, even the smallest little community. Every synagogue is ransacked, every Jewish home is raided, and all the ingredients components of a typical pogrom. Men are murdered, women are raped, children are beaten. Yet where there are signs, don't walk on the grass, this mob doesn't do that, these very proper Germans, yet all Jewish property is ransacked. All Jewish stores, it's called Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass. That was a cynical term, as if crystal became very crystal clear the situation. All the stores are ransacked and pillaged and plundered, then all glass in Germany, like everywhere in Europe, comes from Belgium. More than seven times the yearly import of glass was destroyed that night. The Jews could not collect a quarter million Reichmarks in damage and in insurance, in insurance payments. They had to repair the shops at their own expense, and after they repaired them, they were, mis they were appropriated and they were aryanized and given to the Germans. And then the Jews were forced to clean up the mess as if they were responsible and... Also, they had to pay a 1 billion Reichmark fine as if they were responsible. This brought German Jewry to suffocating poverty. There were also very important components like that night, in many, Jewish, in many communities, Jews were forced in the middle of the night in their night clothing to run barefoot across all the broken glass. They had to set their own synagogues on fire and dance around it and sing. And 30,000 Jews enlisted that had been prepared in advance were rounded up that night, a night of exquisite torture. We had to stand all night long and shite Heil Hitler and do other entertainment for the Germans. In the morning, the Orthodox Jews were forced to clean up the excrement and the urine on the floor with their beards, and then they were marched out in the streets to the concentration camps as the Germans jeered and watched them go. So the world was well aware of what was happening to the Jews, certainly Britain was, and in May of 1939, Britain issued a white paper basically agreeing to all of the Arab demands at the very same time that Europe was a death trap for the Jews. Immigration to Palestine would be restricted to 7,500, pardon me, 75,000 over a five-year period. Any more 
would require Arab consent. The White Paper also included a restriction on the sale of land to Jews. There was a 10-year plan which Palestine would become an independent state with an Arab majority. Astonishingly, unless you know the consistent Arab reactions, the Arabs rejected the White Paper, which gave them everything they had asked for, yet they rejected it. It wasn't still enough. And so again, I question, what is the purpose of negotiation if the other side insists that all their demands be met? For the Jews, the White Paper was the worst thing as it meant the Jews who needed to escape Europe could not come to Palestine when every other door in the world was already sealed shut before them. The Jewish opponents of the White Paper, inspired primarily by Zeb Jabotinsky, began to sabotage British infrastructure. They would not comply with the passive attitude of the Haganah, the precursor of the Israel Defense Forces. But slowly, all of the Jewish settlement in Israel realized that they really had no choice but to work for the illegal immigration to Palestine. I call it illegal immigration because that was the perspective of the British. Balfour had called for a Jewish home for the Jews in Palestine. But without immigration, there could not be a Jewish home. With Hitler menacing the Jews, Britain made it very clear to Hitler that the fate of the Jews was not its concern. The 21st Zionist Congress met in Geneva in August 1939. When Chaim Weizmann closed the Congress, there was a sense of impending tragedy. And he said, It is with a heavy heart I take my leave. And the audience wept. The First Zionist Congress in 1897 had closed with great hope and optimism. In 1939, there was dread. One week later, September 1st, 1939, Hitler invaded Poland, which of course would set off World War II. Most of the delegates to the 21st Congress would be dead by the war's end. And now we're going to tell the tale of three boats with but one message. We turn to the very eve in the beginning of World War II in order to study the fate of these three ships. All three boats left from three different ports at three different times, but they were all heading in the very same direction, which is away from the death trap of Europe. The first, and the most famous, or perhaps better put, the most infamous, was the SS St. Louis, which set sail in May of 1939 from Hamburg to Cuba. Obviously, these are the wealthiest German Jews because to afford passage on a boat and to pay for the paperwork to get into Cuba required money, and Germany, as we already described, German Jews were totally impoverished after all that had been taken from them by the Nazis and then the one billion Reichmark tax upon all German Jewry. These were 937 Jewish passengers, and all of them had legitimate certificates to dock in Cuba. Of the 937, 736 had legitimate paperwork to go to America, but these visas would only be valid in three months' time. However, the Cuban government canceled the visas, hoping to acquire a bribe from these Jews before they would allow them to disembark, not to mention the fact but actually we will mention it, Yosef Goebbels, the Minister of Propaganda, was not about to allow a shipload of Jews to merely escape. And they dispatched 14 agents to Cuba to convince the authorities that the Jewish passengers were criminals, fugitives, and liars in every which way, the total, absolute, quintessential persona non grata. Do not allow them into your country. 
In the spring of 1939, 930 Jewish refugees booked passage from Hamburg to Cuba aboard the Hamburg America Line's opulent St. Louis. For more than 700 of the passengers, Cuba promised to be a safe place to wait until their quota number was called and they could legally enter the United States, a temporary haven until the time their dreams could begin again. As young Bella Ulfelder made her way to the Hamburg docks with her family, the changing landscape of Germany was revealed to her in a somber conversation with her mother. My mother said to us on the train that uh, so far we have had all our wishes granted, but from now on we have no money and we would not be they would not be able to grant any more of our wishes and it would be best if we would not have any more wishes. The Jewish families, many of them prosperous, had been stripped by the Nazis of their wealth, their cash, jewelry, land holdings, personal property, prior to boarding the St. Louis for the voyage to Cuba. Most were permitted to carry only a small amount of currency. We were only allowed to take enough clothing for the two weeks that the passage would take, and we left all our furniture, all our other belongings in our house and they were supposed to be packed at a later date and shipped to America. Of course, that never happened. We never got anything. Now, the Jews were stuck. They needed to come up with a bribe. This was not a simple bribe of a few dollars. The Cubans were looking for nearly half a million dollars. The Jews who fled, they were only allowed to take out of Germany what they allowed Jews to take off, with maybe even the shirt on their back, with 10 Reichmarks, which is about the equivalent of less then $4. The captain of the ship, Gustav Schroeder, was a benevolent, magnanimous humanitarian, and he did all that he could to care for these passengers. And he figured, well, if Cuba will not let them in, and Teller from Jerusalem has already described how James G. MacDonald tried to get them into the Virgin Islands, but that was rejected by FDR and his cabinet. So the captain decided to sail his ship up and down the eastern seaboard. Canada would not open its doors, and America would not open its doors. America appointed a Coast Guard cutter to intercept. Up and down he went, they would not be let in. 907 passengers remained aboard the St. Louis, freedom nearly within arm's reach. Just as in Germany, their welfare seemed dependent on the unpredictable whims of pitiless government officials. Now, with asylum so near, the refugees could hardly dare to hope. Would Captain Schroeder deliver them to safety? Was freedom from Hitler to be theirs? The harbor in Havana, Cuba, is known as one of the world's most grand and beautiful. To the 907 Jewish refugees stranded aboard the St. Louis, it must have been a bittersweet sight indeed. Two weeks earlier, they had sailed from Germany to escape dictator Adolf Hitler's program of hatred and persecution against Jews. After crossing an ocean with fragile hopes for a new life, 
It seemed as if the St. Louis passengers were becoming victims of the fever of isolationism infecting much of the Western world in the dark days before World War II. Four days after arriving in this fabled Latin American port, they were still being denied entry. While negotiations continued with the Cuban government, ship's captain Gustav Schroeder summoned the passengers committee, headed by Lisa Loeb's father, to high-level meetings in his quarters. The committee men were with the captain morning, noon, and night. I hardly saw my father. Meanwhile, all these telegrams went out to President Roosevelt and to Mrs. Roosevelt and to even Chamberlain, uh, the Prime Minister of uh, Great Britain, and to various and sundry Jewish organizations and countries to help us. And help wasn't coming. In the end, this doomed ship was forced to return to Europe to let off its doomed passengers. And many of them perished in the Holocaust. Last-ditch efforts by the JDC to secure a financial agreement with the Cuban government that would vouch for the St. Louis refugees failed. And on May 31st, Captain Schroeder was told that the ship would have to leave Cuba. He had done all he could to help his passengers, but still felt he had failed them. Finally, he could delay no longer. On June 2nd, with helpless friends and families watching from ashore, the St. Louis set out from Havana Harbor. The day we left was probably one of the saddest days in the lives of all of them on board, including the captain. And he, he writes, it seemed like we had left the planet and didn't belong to the world anymore. enormous liner slowly turned and headed out to sea. Its destination, the one place in the world the Jewish refugees aboard had hoped they would never see again, Nazi Germany. The second ship set sail November 1940 and reached Haifa Bay from Romania with some 730 refugees from Germany. The British Mandatory Authority refused to let them enter and ordered them onto a different ship, the Patria, that would take them to Mauritius in the Indian Ocean. Members of the Jewish military resistance placed explosives in the engine room of the Patria to sabotage its departure. However, the plan backfired, and it sank the ship, killing 267 refugees. The British sent the remainder of the ship's passengers to an internment camp in Atlit, which is south of Haifa. The third and final ship, there were other refugee ships with very sad stories, but I'm only highlighting three, three, sto three stories. And the third ship is the hardly seaworthy Struma, which is an old and rotten riverboat built over 100 years before this to transport cattle. This set sail for Palestine from Romania on December 16, 1941. On board were 769 refugees bound for Palestine. The voyage should have just been for a few days, but due to engine trouble, the boat headed for Istanbul for repair. The Turkish authorities refused to offer even temporary sanctuary, even to a land facility 
in Turkey that was entirely funded by Jewish organizations. They would not allow the ill-fated boats passengers off, even to this facility that was funded by the Jews. The refugees were forced to subsist on the boat for four months with but one freshwater faucet, four sinks, and eight toilets. The ship was bereft of everything, from toilet paper to life preservers. The British refused to allow the boat to arrive in Palestine, even to have the passengers come to Palestine and then be transferred to Mauritius. On February 23, 1942, the Turks towed the boat without food, fuel, or water into the Black Sea, and they abandoned it there without a functioning engine. Within hours, a Soviet submarine torpedoed the Struma, drowning all the men, women, and children on board, except for one man who managed to survive. So the St. Louis, the Patria, and the Struma, as author Daniel Gordas writes, underscores a message with very dread clarity. For the Jews who had nowhere to go and nowhere to escape, a Jewish state was a matter of life and death. If there was anyone who was hitting this message, it was surely not the British who originally upheld their appeasement policy to the Arabs, which forbade Jewish immigration into Palestine. But despite British opposition, the Haganah pressed on with getting illegal immigrants into Israel. Ships were, ships were procured, crews were assembled, and arrangements were made to hide the refugees once they arrived. The plans only achieved minor success, but for those few that it saved, I guess it can be described as a major success. The immigrants that succeeded in slipping into Palestine usually were caught, and then they were placed in detention camps, the largest one being an athlete, as we described already, south of Haifa. The British had very little patience for their rules being violated and zero sympathy for the refugees. The illegal immigrants, I'm saying this, of course, according to the British perspective, which made them illegal, were dumped into crowded internment camps whose conditions were appalling in the hope that this would deter other Jews, other Jews from Europe, that is, from attempting to come to Palestine. This is a very cynical justification of cruelty, which became the trademark for the way that the British treated the Jews of Palestine for those who were trying to enter it. This very condescending and anti-Semitic behavior is portrayed in Leon Uris's book and the 1960 film Exodus, which I hope will be a separate episode on Teller from Jerusalem. But the British didn't just stop there. In order to curtail all immigration, the British exerted diplomatic pressure upon the countries from which the boats had sailed. They also exacted, as a punitive measure, drastic reductions upon already measly quotas of Jews, numbers of Jews that were allowed to come into Palestine. The British excused their heartless behavior by justifying, in an excuse which no one believed, that Axis spies might have infiltrated among the refugees who would then commit espionage against His Majesty's government. Now, this should be somewhat familiar to us because the anti-Semites in the United States State Department employed similar ruses to keep the doors of America closed to Jewish refugees. We're going to pick up this story. Maybe it's... Uh, well, we'll just start it now. We'll have to start up next time. Again, the British excuse was a very lame and inappropriate excuse is that we can't afford to allow Jews in. There might be spies among them. And this was the same ruse that the government officials said in the State Department. They said that, said the State Department, to the FBI, to the President Franklin Roosevelt, 
that these refugees posed a serious threat to national security. All historians believe that the concern about refugee spies was blown way out of proportion. In fact, there was no truth to it whatsoever. And we'll end by just stating the United States government turned away thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jewish refugees, fearing that they were Nazi spies. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit tellerfromjerusalem.com where you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting the TFJ code, you receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all Hanoch Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to tellerfromjerusalem.com.